I'm going to have you turn this morning uh, to the book of Revelation. We're back to that book. And a very challenging book. I'm, I'm glad we've taken a break. You know, it seems every other week we've had a special event. And, and I've said, boy, that's good news because it's been pretty intense going through this book. And I don't think today is going to be any different. So I'm going to ask us to just open our hearts this morning and let's pray again. I'm going to ask that God would do such a profound work in our hearts because I really believe the heart is the essence. When I talk about the heart, I'm talking about the essence of who we are, minds, our emotions, our will. We're talking about the totality of our being. Let's just ask God to open our hearts today that we might hear his voice speaking to us both you know, collectively but also specifically to you. How many here you want God to speak to you specifically? Wouldn't that be great? Just walk out going, God spoke to me today. So, Lord, that's our prayer, that you're going to speak to each heart that's hearing my voice, be it in the sanctuary or if it's beyond into um, the, the podcast, Lord, that you're going to speak into hearts and lives. And you're going, to, you're going to help us become aware of what is occurring in our world, that we're going to begin to see life from your lens, from your perspective, Father. And that we're going to begin to embrace your values, values that bring life and wholeness, Values that bring hope and, and deliver us from fear of evil and of the evil one. And we just thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A number of years ago, I read a book by Ravi Zacharias. I really like him. He wrote a book called Deliver Us From Evil. In that book, he tells the story of a friend of his. He was a pastor who received a phone call late one night. And on the other end of the phone was a distraught young man. And he kept saying, I've killed her. And so finally he comes to this young man's home. And there he is. He's holding his wife. And there's blood everywhere. And she's dead. And he just kept repeating it. I killed her. I killed her. I killed her. So the story comes out as they're beginning to share. You know, eventually they call the police. But he shares with his pastor how this young couple were studying to be medical doctors. So they're very bright, they're, very, they're godly young people, and they're vibrant, and they have a life map. They're kind of planned out their life, and they're you know, believing that they're going to both eventually finish their medical school and go into medical practice and then begin their family. But you know how many know that sometimes our plans and God's plans differ? Anybody experienced that? That you and I can have a dream and then all of a sudden it seems to be going sideways. And she found out that she was pregnant. And it, and it, and it so threw this young couple off. And they, they knew that you know abortion isn't a thing that they should participate in. But they just couldn't wrap their minds about changing their plan. And so they, after a lot of soul searching and agony, they decided to abort the child. And because he was studying how to administrate anesthetics... He was reluctant, but she convinced him that he could do it. And so they planned everything, brought all the supplies home one night. And that's when everything went wrong. He had made a mistake in the amount of dosage he gave her. And he could not resuscitate her. And there she laid in his arms, the love of his life. He had killed her. You know, there's a way that appears to be right. But in the end, it leads to death. You know... I've meditated on this text and I've thought a lot about it. So often in all of our lives, we tend to think at the time we're making right decisions. But, you know, hindsight is an amazing thing. We can look back and we can see that sometimes the decisions we made were not always the best decisions or the right decisions. And 
today in our society, not, you know, I, I believe that we're being challenged to live life with what I call inverted values. In other words, the values are being flipped from what God says is good and important and right to what our society is saying what is good, important, and right. It's almost like they flipped over. You know, what was once considered good today now is almost, well, we would use the term politically incorrect. You can't even speak the truth anymore because people will look down on you as if you've just said something that's evil. How many know what I'm talking about? It's becoming that way more and more. We speak as if God's way is evil. What was once considered sinful or evil today is considered valuable and it's worth promoting. And what was what we used to believe, you know, now we question it. And so what are we to do? What does God think about the way our culture is thinking? What is it? How does God see it? What's important to God? Just prior to exile in Babylon, Isaiah warned his generation who were struggling with the same thing. And he said it this way in Isaiah chapter 5. He said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. In other words, they're, they're, they're basically saying the things that they once considered good, now they're saying they're evil. And the things that they once thought were evil, now they're saying those things are good. Does, does there any, anybody sense that maybe we're experiencing similarity to what Isaiah is talking about here? Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It sounds like they're kind of confused as to what is right and what is wrong. And you know, when I was a young person, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I can tell you, I was confused back then. I was a lot older now. Today, it's even more confusing. There's more voices propagating what is evil as if it is good today. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul warns against being very clever and wise in our own eyes while forsaking God's ways. Um, as a matter of fact, he said, Isaiah says it, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Paul's going to reiterate that frame of reference here when he's writing to the Romans. And he says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Isn't that an interesting thought? That actually truth can be suppressed when we're experiencing or doing what's wicked. We actually are suppressing the truth. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile or vain, or empty, or without profit. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Then down to verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. So, we're in the book of Revelation. I'm just giving you a little preamble here. What is the book of Revelation about? Well, you know, simply, it's about a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. But, you know, we get kind of the last word on things, like the last word on what God thinks about worship and prayer and we get the end times, you know, what's going to happen at the end. We, we know that that's part of it. It's to reveal who Christ is. But we also get the last word on judgment. And it's probably a theme we don't even consider 
or talk about because we somehow equate in our minds that judgment is bad, right? You know, it's evil, it's not good. And I want to kind of shift your thinking on that concept a little bit today. I'm going to challenge us and point out to you that judgment and justice is actually a good thing at times. Because especially when you're on the other side and you're being treated unjustly. How many have ever experienced injustice? Yeah, well then all of a sudden, what would you like then? You want justice, right? And you want fairness. You want what's right. How many say that's true? We want the right thing. And that's all part of justice and of judgment. So God now is going to make a distinction here, and we're going to look at Revelation chapter 9. God is going to make a distinction between those who put their trust in him and those who reject him. I love this. God does make distinctions. And I think wise people are able to make distinctions. People who are not wise can't make any distinctions. They they don't see any distinctions whatsoever. Everything's the same in their eyes. But God has got wisdom, and those he shares his wisdom with can make those kinds of distinctions. And he answers the question of what happens to those who embrace evil and avoid godliness. Because there are people today who want nothing to do with righteousness. Isn't that true? They want nothing to do with what's good, what's pure, what's holy. They want nothing to do with it. You talk to them, and I'm telling you, they'll freak out on you. They just don't want to know anything about it. Not everyone's like that, thank God. But there are people like that. You know, it's interesting. The psalmist says this about God. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. We've got to read the Bible correctly, folks. God's throne is a, a throne where he does what is just. What he does which is right. Aren't you glad God is going to do the right thing. How many are happy God will do the right thing? I'm so happy about that. Because there's a lot of people today, you know, you, you know, I've had people say this, I go to court and I don't always get justice. You know, I've, I have a good friend, he's an attorney, and he tells me, you know, the law is, doesn't necessarily mean justice. And sometimes we think it brings justice. What it is is just the practice of law. You don't always get justice. But I can declare to you today, with God, you're going to get justice. You're going to get what's the right you're going to, he's going to do what's right for humanity. I'm glad for that. It says, he rules the world in righteousness and judges the people with equity. In other words, with fairness. Aren't you glad that God's fair? Let me say, yeah, I'm so glad he's fair. There's a lot of people that aren't fair. Life is not fair, but God is fair. And just because we don't always experience fairness does not mean that God is not fair. Because the final tally hasn't come in yet. And one of the great hopes is when we're experiencing injustice in our life is that one day justice will prevail on the planet. And I want to declare to you today there's a day coming when things will be made right. So all the people who think that, you know, some of you are wired this way. You're just, you're like into truth. You're into what's right. I want to declare to you that day is coming. Amen? You know, some other people say, oh, I just want mercy, Pastor. I don't want what's right. I just want mercy, you know? Okay, those are for all the mercy givers. But I want to declare to you that, you know, I'm happy that God's going to do things like this. Paul Spilsbury in his book on Revelation says, the purpose of the judgment so graphically and violently depicted in Revelation is to make absolutely clear clear the intensity of God's opposition to evil. Isn't that great? God's against evil. How many say, I like God. 
You know, that's kind of where I'm at. I don't like evil. How many here, you say, oh, I really like evil. I'm embracing evil. Of course not. You wouldn't be here. We're, we want what's right. We want what's just, right? We want what's good. So while we're traveling through the book of Revelation, I think we need to stop and reflect that these judgments are meant to cause humanity to consider their actions. You know, how many know that if there are no consequences to behavior, people can behave very poorly? Right? I mean, you know, if you don't discipline a child, what's going to happen? Well, they're going to go all over the place. They're going to do stuff that's even ruinous to their own soul. They're going to destroy themselves. They just don't know any better. They don't have any wisdom to stop. And yet, I think as we look at our society today, we're all like a bunch of kids with no rules. Isn't that what's kind of happening today? Sure, we can see that, you know. Now, there is good news. But think about it. What do we consider good? What is the good news? Or what is good news to you? Or better yet, what does God think is good news? You know, and I think in Mark chapter 1 we read this. And John was put in prison. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. So what is the good news, Jesus? He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So what is the, king, what is the good news? That the kingdom has arrived. And how do we know the kingdom has arrived? Because the king has come on the scene. And he's going to provide all the benefits of the kingdom. The good news is that God became the king. He became flesh. He's lived among us. He ultimately died for our sins. And he demonstrated that he conquered death and sin, but you know what, what triggered all those things is evil. That's what he conquered. And the only proper response to good news is to change our mind. Repent. I think we, that's another term we have a hang-up on. You know, we always think repentance is a negative term. You know, we should be repenting every day. I, I like repenting. What repentance means simply is I'm changing my mind. I'm coming in agreement with God. And so as I'm learning about who God is and as I spend time every day trying to get to know God, my mind is being changed. I'm repenting. Isn't that a positive idea? I think it is. See, I think sometimes we have... You know, because we always think repentance means I'm being a bad person, therefore i got to straighten up. Isn't that kind of the connotation of the term? But I'm telling you, it's actually a positive term, and it just means I'm coming in agreement with God. I'm changing my mind. So what happens when people reject good news? Well, the only thing left is bad news. How's that? If you, if you reject what's good, all you're left is what's what is got no value. And our culture today has a lot of stuff going on with no value. And we find here at the close of chapter 8 in John's vision an eagle. He's crying out in, in midair a message of woe. There's three woes, he says. And these are the final three trumpet judgments that are about to sound. And so in chapter 9, we have two of them. And the scene is a refusal to respond to God in obedience. And you know, this story's been played out before, by the way, in a, a different level. And so when I think when we read the book of Revelation, I want to take you to another part of the Bible to help you understand the book. You have to almost go to the story of when Israel was in Egypt in captivity and Moses comes on the scene and what is he doing? He's talking to the king, Pharaoh, and he's telling him, let my people go. And what happens to Pharaoh? He goes, no, I'm not going to do that. And then we have the ten plagues. How many remember the story in the book of Exodus? Okay? So when you understand the book, that story, I think it'll help you understand Revelation. 
Because a lot of the pictures that you're picking up in the last book are actually taken from that story. And it's brought into the last story. And I believe that we're going to learn something as we look at both of the stories. It begins to unload some things. But what was the big problem there? That every time the plague came, you know, remember that what did the king do? Moses, get back here. Go talk to God. Get this thing to stop. Yes, I'll change my mind. I'll let the people go. And as soon as Moses interceded to God to stop the plague, what did Pharaoh do? He changed his mind, is what he did. He got stubborn. He kind of dug in, didn't he? He said, I'm not letting my free labor market go. I'm not going to set these people free. Who is this Yahweh anyways, right? Isn't that kind of what he did over and over again? Read the story, Exodus chapter uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 by 12. They're heading out of Egypt, okay? You read that story there, that'll help you. But in chapter 10, finally, after so many plagues, you know, Pharaoh was becoming so unreasonable that even his officials came to him, and this is what they said to him. You know, they said, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? In other words, your stubbornness and unyieldedness to letting these people go has caused plague after plague in our land and our nation is now destroyed because of it. And what I'm going to say to us today is simply this, that when you and I harden our hearts toward what God wants to have accomplished in our lives, what we're doing is ruining ourselves. Pharaoh ruined his own soul. Pharaoh ruined his own family. Pharaoh ruined his own nation. And when you and I Do not yield to God. We're ruining ourselves, we're ruining our families, and we ruin our communities and ultimately our nation. We're doing exactly what Pharaoh is doing. So in chapter 9, we find this continuation on God's judgment on human rebellion with the intention of trying to arrest attention and bring those who are rebelling to a place of repentance, that they'll change their minds. And so we find two expressions of judgment for sin that comes when repentance is neglected. When you and I refuse to repent, this is the consequences of our actions. And the first one is simply the agony that now is going to be experienced in our lives. You know, we've all said this. You can learn this the easy way or the hard way. Which do you want? You know? Right? How many here say I'd rather learn from other people's mistakes? I'd rather not learn the hard way. I'd rather not go through all that suffering and sorrow to get the lesson, right? All we can ever anticipate when we go our own way and reject the way of the Lord is pain and misery. That's all we can expect. Sin will ultimately be addressed. Evil will not go unpunished by God. You need to know that. God is loving, but he's also just. Though he redeems, he also judges those who reject his redemption. Not only we see this fulfilled in the book of Revelation, but this, is, this expectation was strongly communicated in the prophets in the Old Testament. Listen to what Isaiah said. See, the Lord is coming and out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed on it. The earth will conceal its slain no longer. We need to understand something. God will eventually deal with our sins. There's just no question about it. It's going to happen. God is in control of dispensing justice in regards to our, our sin, our evil, humanity's evil. Look at verse 
1 of chapter 9. Turn in your Bibles. Okay, we're going to go through this chapter real quick. Boom, boom, boom. Verse 1. Fifth angel sounded this trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. And when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace, and the sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. Now what we need to notice is that the key to unlocking God's judgment or retribution is given by God. So what, what do we learn? That God is sovereign. I like the way Leon Moore says, was given is another way of bringing out God's sovereignty. The star angel had no independent authority. Okay? God gives the angel the key. Okay? God's saying, release these locusts. We're going to find out what they are in a minute. God does make a distinction between those who are trusting in him, his people, and those who have spurned and are living in sinful rebellion. Look at verse 4. They were told not to harm. Now, this is their locusts, okay? Think about a locust. What do locusts eat? They eat the plant life. So they are told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or any tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So the only people they can now begin to torment are the people who are not, do, not, do not belong to God. Okay? Everybody see that? Everybody see it? Now, what can I learn from this? Here's what you need to know. Satan has no authority in your life. He cannot harm you. Some of us walk around going, Satan did this, Satan did that. You got bad theology. God makes a distinction. Read the Exodus account. Remember when the plagues were falling? Did it fall on the Israelites? What's the answer? No. When they brought the great darkness, it was light in Goshen where the Israelites were. The plagues were falling on the ungodly. The righteous were being spared. How many go, boy, I really like the story already. I just got to make sure I'm a godly person. I got to make sure that I have the seal of God. I want to make sure that, you know, I'm in a relationship with God so that what's going to befall the earth to deal with evil is not going to happen to me. Right? Can you catch that? Look at verse 4. They were told to harm only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torment them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death but will not find it, and they will long to die, but death will elude them. Wow. Now, the agony speaks to the misunderstanding we have regarding suffering. Sometimes as believers we suffer. How many know that's true? I've been a Christian for a long time. Sometimes Christians suffer. Okay, so what's all that about, Pastor? Well... The fact that locusts, their mission was to torment people. Now, they're only meant to torment the people who don't know Christ. That's what we're getting from this text. But sometimes, as John interprets what he sees by Job's lament of his birth, which this echoes in John 3.21. Remember, remember, Job was a righteous person. What did he say when you know, suffering came his way? He just said, I wish I had never been born. <laughs> you know, God, you're, you're punishing me. See, that was his thinking. And uh, 
The theological question raised by Job's response to his suffering might suggest another way of understanding this trumpet plague. Job felt persecuted by God. If suffering be persecution by God, then life itself would have no meaning. Although Job is a righteous man, he misunderstands his suffering. That's true because he's blaming God. Its purpose was to disclose a reigning God in control of humanity's existence. The outcome in Job's case, of course, is that he realizes his limitations and acknowledges that a sovereign God places limits around human life and that human suffering reflects those very real limitations. So why am I saying all of this? Because I think that the suffering that we experience as Christians is different than the suffering that God's going to allow to happen in people's lives who don't know him. That's what I'm getting at. Okay, does everybody follow that? And so as Christians, sometimes we suffer, okay? And what we're learning that we're limited as human beings. Do you think sometimes we need to learn, we have to be reminded that we're still human? How many think that we sometimes want to deny our humanity? I think that's true. That we, want, we think that sometimes we're better than we really are. Remember Nebuchadnezzar, look all the great things I did. God says, no, you didn't do them, I did this. And then he gets, he gets reduced to a person groveling, you know, loses his mind, he's eating grass in the field like the cows. Remember that? Yeah, so we need to understand something. God reminds us at times that we're still human beings. We're not God. But here in the book of Revelation, the purpose of these sufferings are what we would call uh, retributive. In other words, they are because of what they have done wrong. This is now punishment for what they've done wrong. And we need to understand that God will punish for sin. He will punish for sin. We need to get that. Now, the only way we can get out of that punishment for sin is if we come to Christ and we, we believe that Christ took our punishment upon himself, which he did. And if you and I trust Christ, then we don't have to receive the punishment for our sins because he took it on himself. But if we don't do that, we're going to receive the punishment for our sins. And the goal is to bring people to repentance. But look what happens in chapter 9, verse 20. We're skipping to the very end. Because this is, how do you know that this is the expectation that, God, uh, that John was giving us? Well, look, it says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plague still did not repent of the work of their hands. They still did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see, hear, or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their theft. So Robert Wall concludes, the sinful human person does not repent, only indicates the firm hold evil has on this world's order. Evil is very strong. It's blinding people. It's, people are in its grip. That's what we need to understand. So what's the nature of the punishment? Well, it's supernatural. William Ramsey's, uh, Ramsey Michaels writes this concerning the locuses. These are no ordinary uh, skip, yeah, locuses such as those that attacked the Egypt in Moses' time. Those were just regular locuses. About him it was written, never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. John's locusts are more like the locusts in Joel's vision centuries later when he says, A nation has invited, invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines, ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark, thrown it away, and leaving their branches white. In other words, Joel has a vision of an army behaving like locusts, devouring their land. That was, you know, basically when the Assyrians came in and began to conquer. And then it says, but Joel's locust plagues, like John's, 
basically are heralding this idea of the day of the Lord, which is a day of judgment. I keep telling you that. The day of the Lord in the Bible is a day of judgment. In John's vision, they are supernatural demons from the abyss. So how many know the supernatural? People are really mesmerized by it. Do you know that as human beings, we have an almost an unhealthy curiosity about the supernatural? Because I think there is the supernatural, and that's why it's there. But how many know in the supernatural, like a lot of people, have you noticed on TV people like all those supernatural stuff? How many kind of catch that? They all are enmeshed by and curious about it. But when it starts happening to us in a real life situation, it's terrifying. Anybody know that? You know, every time I've read in the Bible that God's angels appeared to people, they were ter- people were terrified. If God showed up on the scene, people were scared. You know, if demons show up on the scene, people are going to be terrified. We're going to see, you know, people are going to experience a lot of terror because the, the supernatural is unknown. It's not natural. It's not what we're normally expecting. So God's going to bring down evil in a very dramatic manner. And that's what we need to realize from this chapter. Now, the second expression of judgment for sin, apart from repentance, not only is there agony, but we find that is that it will happen. It's just inevitable. See, we act as if we'll never have judgment occur in our world. We've, we've experienced mercy for a long time. See, How many know that if, if judgment is not swiftly given, then people think judgment never comes? How many know that's true? That's the way we think. Because it's deferred or delayed, we think it'll never happen. And why does God not judge people instantly when they sin? Because God's long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. So God gives us a space for repentance. He gives us time to change our mind. You know, oh, I did the wrong thing. He, he doesn't just kind of lightning bolt out of heaven, zaps us when we do the wrong thing. He gives us a chance to, you know, repent, to change our mind. Um, and how many know that there have been moments throughout human history where God judges individuals? You know, how many recognize that when Abigail was married to Nabal and he was kind of a, you know, a foolish, ungodly, self-centered person, David asked him for some food. He said, nah, you know, and then he finds out later that David was going to come and kill him. The Bible says, and God smote him. He probably had a stroke, you know, and then he died 10 days later. How many think that was the judgment of God? And then David says, I didn't have to kill him. God dealt with him. Okay, that's an expression of God judging an individual. But now think about this. Do you know God judges nations? I'll give you an example. You know, some of us maybe are not into history, but I am really into history, and I'm, I, I, I study it a lot. And I'm listening to some lectures, and, I, and you know, the bubonic plague in the 14th century was so deadly. You know, southern Europe, they would have estimates. You know, it was kind of, it was a, a plague that came in from Asia, and it swept over the Mediterranean part, and sometimes up to 40% of the population was killed. I'm listening to lectures on medieval England. And in 1348, you know, they knew it was coming because it had hit the continent. And they were, you know, scared out of their minds. But when that that plague hit England, one-third of the population died within, you know, just a few months. By the time March of 1349, it hit the fall of 1348. By the time the spring of 1349 hit one-third to up to a half of the population had died. 
Now, can you imagine? You know, you're an undertaker. People are buying caskets for people that are dying, but, you know, they could not keep up. They, 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 that was the end of it. They, they weren't even burying people in single plots anymore. They were literally burying people in mass graves. And in London itself, they estimated between 30 and 50% of 70,000 people perished within a few months. Now, I don't know if that strikes you as being interesting, but think about the city of Red Deer. You know, if we had a plague of that magnitude, you're talking 30 to 50,000 people. How many know if that many people died in Red Deer, don't you think it would have affected all of our lives? We would know so many people. We'd be so heartbroken. It would be so terrible. And you go, well, yeah, but they didn't know about science back then, Pastor. Listen, in 1919, that's not too long ago. That's the beginning of the 20th century. There was a pandemic that happened in our world. It was called the Spanish flu. And the reason it was called that was because it was first originated in the United States with some young American soldiers who went over to Spain. And it, you know, a devastation happened in Spain. But listen to this. In 1919, 500 million people contracted the flu. And between 20 and 50 million people died in 1919, which was more than all of the casualties from World War I. You go, Pastor, that's terrible. I go, yeah. But see, we don't think of it this way, but that's God reaching out and allowing judgment to happen to our nation. So, you know, we we continue on as if there's no problem. We live in sin. We do our thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, nothing happens for a long time and we think it's okay to just do our own thing. But if we're, you know, turning our backs on God, don't you think God eventually is going to call us to an account for the way we behave? And the answer is yes, he will. And so when I read these texts here in Revelation, I'm not surprised by them. You know, listen to the intensification of the judgment as seen in the sixth uh, trumpet or the second woe. Verse 13. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. I want to just go back over that verse and say it one more time. These angels were kept ready. These angels are really, the word angel means messenger. These messengers were hindered from doing anything until a given moment. And at that moment, they were released to do their work. Can you imagine? The messengers. And then it says the number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. That's 200 million. And I heard their number. In other words, what happened was... You know, it's a vision of an army sweeping across the Euphrates River and bringing devastation. And a third of the population was killed. That's pretty scary stuff, isn't it? How many think that's pretty intense? third of the population gone. Boom, just like that. You know, and this is really satanically inspired. Now, Robert Wall writes regarding the importance of geography. You know, when we read our Bibles... A lot of times we're just unacquainted with certain geographical locations. But he says, geography holds theological meaning. For John and his first audience, the river Euphrates, where the four angels will mount their attack, symbolizes two realities. One, it symbolizes a vulnerable Roman Empire. So if you knew anything about history, the Euphrates rivers was the border between the end of the Roman Empire and the beginning of the Parthenian Empire. And the Parthenians 
were actually a very formidable foe. And Rome had lost significant battles against these guys. They, they never won a battle until 116 AD from them. And some of you have heard that idea of the parting shot. You know, it's an expression that we have. That comes from the Parthenians. You know why? Because they were famous as cavalrymen. They knew how to turn around and shoot arrows backwards. And so when you're riding through infantry and you turn around and start shooting arrows, in the Roman thing, you have shields in the front and you're exposed in the back. They would ride right on through and then shoot backwards. It was a very formidable foe against them. Now, it's not suggesting here that this is what it's talking about. It's the Parthenian invasion. That's not what he's talking about. But in their mind, they had this image that the Euphrates rivers was a vulnerable place and they, was, you know, they, they knew that they could you know, succumb to another empire. And you know, it's interesting, again, we're looking at the east again. There's all kinds of concerns in the west, right? Come on now. Anytime we look around, we see these intensities because we don't understand. They're the unknown people. They have different value system. Well, let me just move on here. Whereas the locust is tortured, the angels and their hosts killed a third of the group. Now, what we need to learn from these warnings is simply this. And I like the way Leon Morrison says, believers live in this world. We must live in this real world, right? It's not an imaginary world. And what happens in this world, he's making it plain to these believers. This was probably a small group that were being persecuted. They, they must not expect to live in a world that understood them and welcomed their witness. And now, we're living in that world right now. And we're all upset because, you know what? We're saying the values of our culture are going sideways or backwards, however you want to say it, and there's a hostility to Christianity. Does anybody know there's a growing hostility to Christianity? Has anybody figured this out yet? And I'm just going to tell you, that's been normal throughout human history. You know, it happens. And we shouldn't be shocked by it. I'm just saying, you know, you better arm your minds and be prepared because... Uh, there's a lot more non-believers than there are believers, and we can see that in our culture today. You know, wouldn't it be great if you could just have, we could, you know, even, let's just talk for a moment politically. Could you imagine somebody walking up and going, you know, our nation's in a terrible shape, and we need to turn our faces back to God, and we need to deal with some things in our nation that are evil and wrong. What do you think the response would be from the majority of our culture? What's that? Well, we, we, you know, you'd have a problem, a little problem. They'd say, you know, we're going to deal with some of these moral I- evils in our nation. You'd have, you'd have media writing articles and saying that we're taking us back to the black, you know, the dark ages. I'm just telling, I'm pointing these things out. Isn't that true? You'd have all kinds of people on, you know, that, you know, you guys are, you know, you're trying to make us do something. We don't want to do these things. No matter how severe the judgments of God, the world continues with its idolatries and its manifold sins. Believers must not delude themselves. This world uh, that John depicts where sinful people resist God to the limit, no matter how much they hurt themselves in the process, is the world in which we're living in. So why are we constantly shocked by the rejection from our society towards God's standards? Why are we shocked by the nasty and angry rhetoric against what is holy and good? While our culture tries to tell us that human beings are essentially good, the Bible says that we're actually rebels against God. There's two conflicting viewpoints of humanity. Now, I I would say, yes, we're all made in the image of God. The only problem is sin came into the world. It's affected that image. And Isaiah's right when he said, we're all like sheep. We've all gone astray. We've all gone our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the inequity of the soul. 
And then we look at the terrifying description of this destructive army in verses 17 to 19. You know, you got this vision, you know, heads of the horses resembling the heads of lions, and out of their mouths come fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind is killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they were inflicting injury. Well, what is John doing? He's giving us a disturbing vision that none of the judgments described up to now have succeeded in bringing about repentance or any change of heart in an evil world. The surviving inhabitants of the earth are like Pharaoh in the face of the plagues in Egypt's times. Their hearts are hardened and they will not repent. We've already read those verses in verses 20 and 21. So let me, let me close with this. We are living in an interesting moment. And we are moving in a direction. How many say we all see it? Anybody here? Is everybody paying attention? Can you see where we're going? We're going in the wrong direction, right? As a culture, we're going in the wrong direction. We see oppression, but we need to know one thing. Every act of evil will be judged by God, number one. We're living in a world where injustice seems to be prevailing where the culture is redefining what's right and wrong, where confusion seems to be abounding, we're living with a false sense of entitlement and a false sense of security. And when life is going well, we just can never foresee that crisis is just around the corner. God, in his long-suffering, in his love, he's restraining judgment, but we must never be unaware. We must live diligent and alert lives. We must watch and pray. We must work while it is day, for the hour is coming, Jesus said, when no man will work. We are living in such a way that regardless of what happens to us, we must live a life pleasing to Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in his, one of his closing addresses. It's found in Matthew chapter 24. He said this, As it was in the day of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For the days before the flood, which was a day of judgment, by the way, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. What's that mean? Life was going on just like it had always been going on. There was no indication that something was about to change. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. And so the question I ask today is, are you ready? Are you ready? Because you see, we act as if it's just going to continue on. Life's just going to continue on like it's always been. And I'm going to say to you, no, there's going to come an abrupt end. And Jesus will come back. And judgment will come. And the only people that won't be harmed are the ones who have already, in a sense, experienced judgment. See, you and I have to be judged. And how do we avoid God's judgment is by embracing Christ and allowing him to take our judgment upon himself. So therefore, we are judged. But those who refuse that, there is no redemption for them. So let's stand. I know it's a little intense. Heavy topic, isn't it? How many go, this is heavy, Pastor? I don't feel goosebumps on my goosebumps this morning. 
you know. But on another sense, I could say this. Think about it. What I said something to us that should, we should all embrace. The devil cannot touch me. I said it, right? He cannot touch us. Amen. Hang on to that. Right. You know, if you've given your life to Christ, you, you could just start rejoicing. Lord, it doesn't matter. You could come tonight. I'm ready. If the flood were to come tonight, if we were in Noah's day, if the flood came tonight, if we're in an ark, let the flood come. We're fine. And in a sense, the ark is actually a picture. It's a type. When you and I come to Christ, it's like we come into the ark. So every one of you in this room, you said, I've given my life to Jesus. I'm serving him today, pastor. I want to declare to you today, you're in the ark. That's the picture you need to see. I'm in the ark. It could start raining tonight. It's fine with me, Lord. I'm in the ark. There's a lot of people around. They're not in the ark. True? They're not in the ark. You say, well, man, I've got a brother, my sister, my son, my daughter. Now you know why I'm so keen on this alpha thing. Invite, 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 invite. Bring, bring, bring. Why? Because if they're not in the ark and the Son of Man comes... Simple. The day of salvation will have passed. That's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. The door to the ark is open. We can come in. We can come in. We can be invited. Come to Christ. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor, I've never given my life to Christ, but today I heard his voice. I want to come in. And that's you. Just raise your hand. That's you. Just raise your hand. You say, I want to come in today. Anybody here? Okay. How many here today say, you know what? God's speaking to me today. I need to take this a little more seriously. I have to admit, Pastor, I've been kind of sleeping a little bit. I haven't been concerned about my family, my neighbors. You know what? God, forgive me. I'm going to do everything in my, the rest of my life. You see, I, I've become more passionate. I'm just saying, Lord, every day, the gift of life that you're giving me, I want to drag as many people in as I possibly can into that beautiful ark. I want people to experience God's redemption. I want them to experience this amazing life that we have in Christ. How many here you say, Pastor, I want to join you. I, I want to be more aware. I want, to, I want to just be more alert to every opportunity. I want to share my faith more courageously. Even if people ridicule me like they did poor Noah, you know, they probably thought he was crazy, you know. They might think you're a little crazy. That's okay, you know. But there'll be a few people say, thank God you were willing to stick your neck out and drag me on the boat. Because when that day comes, there'll be a lot of people hugging your neck because they're sitting on the boat with you. I can tell you that. Isn't that true? So let's do it all that we can do. Amen? All that we can do. Pray, share, invite. Amen? Okay, let's pray. So Lord, I thank you this morning. You're making us more aware that judgment is coming. And it's the truth. It is coming. And you are warning us today to get our houses in order. To get our lives in order. To start looking around and seeing the people around us who we really deeply love and care for. Father, Help us not to be indifferent to where they're at. 
Help us to pray for them. Help us to invite them. Help us to love them. Help us to be courageous and share with them, Lord. Because we know the hour's coming. You're coming back, Jesus. And when that day happens, the opportunity comes to an end. The day of salvation is now over. And all that's left are hearts that have turned hard. And they'll no longer repent. And they will experience the just desserts of their lives. So Lord, help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.